Recovery Elevator, Episode 71. I just knew at the time my life was falling apart. I was feeling awful, and I felt lonely and hopeless, and, and I thought that that was going to be the, my fate until I died. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year, nine months, two weeks, and five days. On today's podcast, we've got Kevin Kirby. He was first diagnosed with addiction 16 years ago, and he's been in remission for 13 years. We'll talk about the words I just used to describe our interviewee later in the interview. It's pretty interesting. It's actually going to make a lot of sense. But before we get any further, I'd like to make an apology. There was a tremendous oversight on my part a couple podcasts ago. Episode 69 was discussing people that I've interviewed on this podcast. A lot of them have relapsed. A lot of them have stayed sober. We are facing one of the most difficult diseases that mankind has ever confronted. That's going to be the topic of today's podcast. But the number one reason why I am doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is to fight the stigma. And for the featured image I had on the podcast blog post was a photo of a woman in her orange jumpsuit. Yeah, nice job, Pablo. Didn't quite use the brain on that one. So I'd like to apologize for that. And I'd like to be clear, I was actually going to bat for that person at a time on social media and news. I didn't see anybody going to bat for her. I saw a lot of people taking easy swings with the bat at her. Okay, before we get any further in this podcast episode, let's hear from our sponsor, Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE for $10 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Just a heads up, Cafe RE will be bumping to $12 a month starting July 2016. The science, the data, it's in. In fact, it's been in for a long time. 50 plus years it's been in. Why I'm still wasting airtime, oxygen, energy, your time, talking about whether alcoholism, addiction is a disease or not, it's frustrating. But again, that's why I get behind the microphone and put out a podcast every Monday. And I want to make it known that I'm not advocating for anything. I'm not hoping it's a disease. I'm not trying to convince anybody that it's a disease. I'm not at all. Hell, if this thing was a weakness of character or a moral failing, this is how the podcast would sound. Welcome to the Recovery Moral Failing Podcast, where we discuss ways to make your character stronger and not be such a weak person. Because really, I don't care what it is. Just the fact that when I start drinking, I find it incredibly difficult. In fact, increasingly more difficult to stop to the point now where it's near impossible. I really don't care what it is. But the science and data, and the jury is not still out on science, that indicates it is a disease. Clear as day. In my opinion, there are two reasons why we are still having this debate slash discussion. 
Number one, this is the most complicated disease that mankind has ever encountered. And here's why. This disease is so complicated because it's physical, it's mental, it's biological, it's environmental, it's physiological, it's social, oh yeah, and it's a spiritual disease as well. The common cold physically makes you feel like shit. Doesn't quite have seven baffling factors working together to create a total shitstorm, which does have a cure. This is a chronic disease that has a cure. And I love the way that the interviewee talks about it today. Kevin and his organization, they're doing the same thing that we are doing. They are fighting the stigma. However, I like his nomenclature, his vernacular, a hell of a lot better than mine. I still need to make the decision if I'm going to use those terms, but I really like it. In fact, before we started the interview, he straight up called me out. I said, hey, Kevin, do you have any questions about the interview before we get started? He said, no, not really, but to tell you the truth, I, I don't like the way these questions are worded. I don't claim to have the answers, never have, didn't get offended. I was like, oh, yeah, no problem. How, what, what can we change? And then what he said made a hell of a lot of sense. If we're trying to make a compelling case that this is a disease, why are we using different words? Why are we using a totally different vocabulary to describe something that's just like cancer, just like multiple sclerosis, a disease? Why do I use the word sober instead of remission? How can we never use the word diagnosed? How can we don't use the word treatable? How come we don't use the word symptoms? Well, again, I just rattled off seven aspects that this disease directly confronts, which makes it the most baffling disease we've ever encountered. But again, if it's a disease, why are we using different terms? So just like we found out the world is not flat, and there are still people out there that believe it is flat, believe it or not, addiction is a disease. And there will always be people out there that don't believe it's a disease. Before I move any further and make my compelling case of why this is a disease, damn it, why am I even talking about this still? I want to throw some stats out that I found on Kevin Kirby's website, WeFaceItTogether.org. 23 million Americans suffer from addiction. 90% of those don't get treatment that they need. That leaves 20.7 million Americans living with untreated addiction. You've heard me say this many times on the podcast, but I, Paul Churchill, am a lucky one. All the people interviewed on this podcast, whether they have stayed sober or not, they are the lucky ones because we realize that we have been diagnosed with a disease. Maybe it's self-diagnosed. Who cares? Hell, my doctor and all of his med school training, he wasn't able to diagnose this. So I guess I will take the liberty and self-diagnose myself. We are the lucky ones that were able to do this. Another stat he says that is alarming is that 100 million Americans have serious health effects due to addiction. I didn't even have to think long about this for it to make sense. This is a family disease. My actions have had direct consequences on my parents, on my brother. My mom has probably been depressed due to my drinking. My brother has probably lost a lot of sleep due to my drinking. Not because I was throwing ping pong balls at his forehead one time while he was sleeping while I was drunk, but because he had to fly out to Bozeman one time and bail me out of jail. Yeah, this is a family disease. If 100 million Americans, almost one-third of the 320 million population that we have, have been affected by this disease, this has to be the nation's and probably the world's number one public health issue. And you can go to recoveryelevator.com, find a podcast episode 71, and you'll find links to the information that I got this stuff, as well as bullet points to what has been discussed in this podcast. The science of addiction? Well, addiction sufferers, they're not bad people who need to get good. They're sick people who need to get well. 
Addiction is a disease that affects both the brain and behavior. I remember hearing this before in a podcast called Radio Lab. They had an episode called The Fix, and the woman at the very end of the podcast, with like the last 20 seconds of the whole podcast, dropped the most value bomb that I heard the entire podcast, talking about how addiction affects the reward center of the brain. And that's what this disease does. This disease, our biological makeup, affects our reward center in our brain, causing our brain to release more dopamine than other people, those normal damn drinkers out there. And a woman in that podcast episode called The Fix from Radiolab made a great point which just got me thinking. Nowadays, my biological makeup, the fact that I have a genetic predisposition to become an alcoholic, if confronted with enough alcohol, which I did a damn good job of while living in Spain owning a bar, is backfiring on me in 2016. But 1,000 years ago, two, three, four, five thousand years ago, we alcoholics would have been the ones to evolve. We had enhanced dopamine receptors in our brain, causing us to walk just a little bit further to find heat, to find food, to find shelter, to find a mate, to find a better view. Those were the character traits, the genetic makeup thousands of years ago that made the difference between life and death. Unfortunately, in 2016, it's backfiring on us. Fortunately, in 2016, it's a disease that has a cure. So basically, while initial use of alcohol or other drugs is a choice, repeated use can lead to profound changes that disturb the way nerve cells in the brain send, receive, and process information. Thank you, the Reagan Just Say No campaign. So for some crazy reason, we do decide to drink before we're 21, myself and about 83% of other high school students, then we're bad people. Oops, my bad. So to explain the release of dopamine a little bit more, when an individual performs an action that satisfies a need or fulfills a desire, dopamine is released in the brain and produces pleasure. It serves as a signal that that action promotes survival. The brain records this experience and we are likely to do it again. Or, a thousand years ago, rubbing sticks together furiously to create fire. Our brains would be like, whoa, this is awesome. We would record that experience and want to do it again. In 2016, damn, that was a good mojito, and I think I'm going to go ask for that girl's number. Well, she didn't have a cell phone. She's in the process of switching cell phone carriers, which I, which I totally understand. And there wasn't a pen and paper around the bar for, for her to give me her number, or else she probably would have. So, so yeah, I'll take nine more mojitos. I often hear the word hijacked when hearing or reading about addiction. In a person who is suffering from addiction, the natural reward circuits get hijacked, while the need to use the drug and alcohol strongly persists. The changes that occur include interfering with the brain's natural chemical systems and overstimulating the reward pathway. Once this happens, the substance activates the same circuits linked to survival, driving powerful urges no different from those driving the need to eat or drink water. Side note. I barely survived the 2000s, but I definitely would have survived the Ice Age. When the booze and the disease of addiction takes hold, these changes in the brain erode a person's self-control and ability, ability, not decision, ability to make sound decisions. While sending highly intensive impulses to take drugs and alcohol, taking that first drink or using drugs becomes a matter of survival. These changes help explain the compulsive, destructive, and often baffling behavior surrounding addiction. Here's a great quote from the American Psychiatric Association. Addiction is not about drugs. It's about brains. It is about the substances a person uses. It is not even the quantity or frequency of use. Addiction is about what happens in a person's brain when they are exposed to rewarding substances or rewarding behaviors. 
and it is more about reward circuitry in the brain and related brain structures than it is about the external chemicals or behaviors that turn on that reward circuitry. Again, you can go to recoveryelevator.com to find the sources, podcast episode 71. Now let's hear from my interviewee, Kevin. Kevin, how are you? I'm great, Paul. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us today. Kevin, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Well, you know, I kind of quit keeping track of that a while back. You know, we, we all suffered at one point in our lives, and that's why you and I are talking from a chronic disease that uh, I, I call addiction. And, and like other chronic disease, I, I view myself as a survivor of that disease. So, you know, my, my disease has been in remission uh, for oh, a little over 13 years. I was first diagnosed uh, about 16 years ago, and like many of us suffering from chronic diseases that nobody wants, we go through a period of professional kinds of treatment services, and I did that over about a two-and-a-half-year period. But my recovery, my, my survival from this disease really began from the date that I first knew that I had the disease. So, so yeah, I'm a 16-year survivor. Kevin, I am looking at my notes real quick, and I'm like, oh, no, I, I, I got a cancer survivor. Uh, I got a cancer, uh, you know, somebody who's in remission from cancer on the podcast, and then I'm like, wait a second. No, this is the right guy. That's terminology that I am not currently familiar with, but already my brain, the wheels are spinning. I love it. And talk to me more before we even dive into these other questions. Remission instead of sober. What's the thinking behind that? And I'm thinking already that I like it. Well, you know, there's just so many things that we have to do in, in this field of addiction, and, and one of them is that we have to get society, and I know you're committed to overcoming stigma. Well, we can't overcome stigma as long as society has this impression that somehow this is different, that the people who get this thing that we call addiction are different from, and then, you know, many people conclude less than, or, you know, they're certainly not us. So one of the things we have to overcome is this language that we've inherited. You know, we've got our own, historically, we've got our own set of language. And we talk about, we debate recovery versus recovered. And we use terminology that means nothing to medicine or science, like alcoholic, substance abuser, and substance use disorder. And those words mean nothing to medicine and science. And yet they mean volumes to society. And, you know, if you want a fun exercise, stand up in a room full of people and say, I'm going to give you three seconds to to have an answer to this question. What does an alcoholic look like? You know what? I've asked well, that exact okay. same question when I speak at schools. Everybody comes yep. up with uh, down and out or living under a bridge, drinking cheap wine out of a brown paper bag. You know, that's somebody active in their disease. They don't think of the school bus driver or the teacher or the airline pilot or the doctor or the mayor or the, you know, the people you and I all know, it's an equal opportunity disease that affects people throughout every segment of society, just like any other kind. Kevin, so, when, when, I when I talk at schools, that's the first question I ask for smaller groups. And my, exactly, my whiteboard, the whiteboard, my whiteboard marker just starts writing furiously stigma words, stereotypes, just like that. And I've got a ton of other questions regarding your vernacular and how you are approaching sobriety. So first off, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, are you married, sure. how old are you, and things like that. What do you do for fun? Uh, well, I'll start with uh, what I, kind of my background. I'm, uh, I'm 61 years old today, and so it was about 45 years old when I came to understand that I suffered from a disease of addiction. So prior to that, I, I'm educated in finance and law, and I spent uh, my career in a financial services business. I was chief investment officer and 
second in command of a nationwide insurance company. And I've spent a lot of time in boardrooms, both uh, for-profit and not-for-profit, public and private. I've lived in the same community my entire life. Uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a population today of about a quarter of a million people. And having lived here and run a business uh, my whole life, uh, I had many opportunities to get very, very involved civically. And so I've I've led everything from our state symphony orchestra to uh, economic development organizations to the community foundation and so forth. And been married for 41 years. I've got three kids, all of whom are grown and have moved to Colorado. But it was the late 90s when I had the world by the tail. I was very successful in business uh, on countless boards of directors, many of which I chaired. And my life started falling apart. And I had no idea what was wrong. None. I, I was depressed and anxious. I felt empty. I felt I could feel alone in a room full of people, including my own family. Things that used to interest me uh, didn't interest me anymore. And and I was self-diagnosing because the, that was my secret. Nobody was ever going to know what I knew to be true about me, that I was broken, that I was there was something fundamentally flawed inside of me. And so even my wife didn't have any idea what was going on. This was and, before Dr. Google came out. How, how were you self-diagnosing and what gave you indication that something was... I knew, I knew how I felt. And, and I, you know, depression was a word that fit me pretty well. And I, uh, I'd always had a, a pretty visible presence in my community. Did a lot of public speaking and that, that sort of thing. And I was finding myself getting really anxious at even the most simple of kind of public appearances. And, and, and I was just growing... Uh, more inside of a shell, you know, all the time. Uh, and just feel uncomfortable in my own skin. I could act a certain way, but it didn't match my insides. Okay. And, and uh, you know, I've come to understand that that's, those are all very common symptoms of the disease of addiction. And yet I, I didn't know. Well, you know, like many of us, we don't know what's wrong with us. We just, our lives are falling apart and, and, and we self-diagnose. And in my case, I found that if I consumed just the right amount of alcohol, that uh, that house of cards that I knew was my life was less likely to come tumbling down. And listeners, you can probably tell by the vernacular that Kevin is using, the way he's describing his addiction. I mean, you know, being not sober, but in remission from alcohol for and everything for 13, 16 years, that uh, he knows a little bit more than I do about this topic, which is amazing. And that's why I have him here. And Kevin started WeFaceItTogether.org. That is how you can find it. That's the website. And Kevin, tell us a little bit more about WeFaceItTogether.org. Sure. You know, I emerged from uh, my last treatment episode in 2003 with, with a very clear sense of purpose. Uh, like a lot of people who've survived some catastrophic thing in their lives, you know, whether it's breast cancer or the loss of a loved one or some other disease, you know, we, we get a second chance, a new perspective on life. And I was given the purpose of doing something meaningful in the field of addiction. And there was just no question about that. It was, it was as real as my left arm. So I, I really spent a lot of time trying to understand what was going on. I, I, I learned an awful lot about the scope of the disease, and, and I was shocked that I didn't know some of these things, that one in ten Americans needs treatment for addiction. And, and by needing treatment, that's that's not just somebody who drinks too much and is a binge drinker or something. Needing treatment is really sick and, and potentially dying from the disease of addiction. Ten percent of American adults, and 
that's got all kinds of repercussions throughout our society. Uh, you know, uh, uh, incomprehensible human uh, consequences. And for every one suffering, and your listeners will definitely be able to relate to this, for every one of us who suffers, there's three or four other lives that we're dragging down with us, typically the people closest to us, typically our family members. You know, do the multiplier, and, and half of America is either dying from this disease or dying from living with the disease. And Kevin, in your video, you had you said a hundred million Americans have serious health issues due to addiction. That is incredible. America is almost three hundred twenty million in population. That's almost a third of the whole population. Just like you said, can you expand? Yeah, tell me more about what you just said. Well, it, it was one of those revelations. I mean, the science, the the research is there. That that's factual. You know, there's no no conjecture on my part. And and so I'm scratching my head saying, why didn't I know this? I nearly died from this disease. I'm a business owner, you know, I'm from well-educated, and I didn't know this. And, and, and every time I turned the page to a new revelation about this disease, I would have the same kind of reaction. And, and, and finally, you know, after learning an awful lot over about a six-month period, I just came to the realization that, or, or I, I came to the question, why isn't somebody somewhere doing something meaningful to articulate the problem that we have in the United States around addiction and then designing meaningful and sustainable solution around addiction. And I looked everywhere. I, I, I scoured uh, the entire public sector and all the impressive uh, credentials in the Beltway in D.C. I got to know a lot of people. I, I know a lot of people in the treatment industry. Uh, I know a lot of the researchers. But but there wasn't a national organization capable of building something big enough to successfully address addiction in meaningful and sustainable ways. And that's what we set out to do with Face It Together. Kevin, that is kind of the same story how Recovery Elevator started. In 2014, I was searching. I was searching for a private community online, a private Facebook group, whatever. You know, there was not an AA meeting at 1.55 in the morning. But what I did find was a Bud Light Lime sponsored ad on Facebook. And I had five minutes to get to the gas station before they closed and, and take a guess what I bought. And so you, you searched everywhere. You're like, wait a second. Why does this not exist? You got to the point when you realized this is a disease. Holy cow. How come I did not know this? And you're like, wait a second. This has to be, this has to exist. It didn't. And you made it. And that's basically with Recovery Elevator. I got to the point where I realized, wait a second. This is a stigma. This is total B. Yes, that this stigma almost took my life. I am extremely lucky to be talking into a microphone right now. And then I knew, I was like, look, I have to do a podcast for one, selfish reasons to help myself stay sober. Number two, to maybe help some people. And it's, it's amazing how many people don't know about this. And also in Kevin, there's like 140 med schools in America and only 14 of those have one class on addiction. It's not just you and I who don't know about it. It's medical professionals. It's doctors who don't know about it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Nobody knows anything about it. So, you know, so what kind of an organization is it going to take to be successful at solving, and there's, there's a word that we can return to, but solving drug and alcohol addiction in communities around the country? I didn't go to school to learn how to solve our nation's biggest health and societal challenge. You didn't either. Nobody did. But here's, here's I think it's pretty fair to conclude this. It's going to take something big. It's going to take something capable of attracting a considerable amount of financial and intellectual capital. Resources. If it's got any chance of succeeding. 
So what we've been up to now for the last, well, really five or six years is we've, we've raised about $6 million of angel capital, which is friends and neighbors and you know, a lot of startups get, get going that way. Maybe your show got started that way. I don't know. But angel capital. So uh, we've been able to attract some really incredibly talented people none of whom have any experience and no credentials in the addiction and treatment world. That is our greatest attribute. So we've got wonderfully talented data people, wonderfully talented communications people, wonderfully talented community organizers and leadership students and governance students, And because it's going to take somebody from the outside looking at a fundamentally broken system to effect any meaningful and sustainable change in the United States. So, so we've, we've developed over that time what we, well, what we know is the only cohesive community-wide model that we think has all the pieces. And, and like you say, it identifies, you know, how does any community solve its biggest societal and health challenge? Well, every sector has to have a role. So what we've done is we've created affiliate community organizations, and we're scaling these up now throughout the United States that are at the hub of a wheel. So think of a wheel. And the hub would be facing together Bozeman, a new nonprofit organization in Bozeman, the mission of which is to solve drug and alcohol addiction in Bozeman. Coming off of the hub, every spoke represents a different sector in the community. So you've got employers, that's a big one, healthcare, payors, the recovery community, faith, K through 12, higher ed, criminal justice, treatment, Everybody has to be at the table if the community has any chance whatsoever of solving a problem this big. And we've been building parts of that model out in our pilot site in Sioux Falls, South Dakota now for uh, six years. We're still not done, but we've made significant progress in some of those sectors in unprecedented ways. And, and there's enough value already being delivered to folks with a financial stake in solving the problem that other communities are reaching out to us and we're, we're, we're growing uh, as we speak. And that was going to be one of the questions I had was, how do you give communities the tools? But you kind of just explained it. There's the hub and the spokes coming off. It's really the entire community needs to be involved with the nation's well, well, number one. Uh, yeah. I should know the answer to this, but uh, are you familiar with uh, William White? Yes. The writings of William White and the Recovery Organ Systems of Care and Recovery Community Organizations. He's really the, the father of the notion of connecting service delivery to the chronic nature of the disease. Well, I back a few years ago when I was educating myself, I read every white paper he's ever written. He's a prolific writer. And and, and through a relationship I had, uh, I was able to connect directly with him. And I got him on the phone. And I had a very good conversation. And I said, look, I'm in. I get what you're writing about, and, and I'm, I think I have enough influence in my community to build one of these recovery-oriented systems of care. Sure. Please send me the template. And he kind of chuckled. <laughs> he, he chuckled because the template didn't exist. I write books, not templates. <laughs> he had been writing about all the you know really really sound in principle stuff and, and creating these ideas of matching service delivery to the chronic nature of the disease, but the, but nobody had built a template. So much of what we've been focused on doing in our pilot community, Sioux Falls, is building the template. And today we literally have a, a playbook that's about 
a foot thick three ring binder, a foot that's also available electronically. This this is 2016. <laughs> uh, but, but that's it's a play. It, it's the, the missing, the elusive template. It's what I was looking for seven or eight years ago when I got on the phone with Bill White. Today the template exists, and we're making it available. To, and it's everything. It's it's everything from. Uh, organizing a community, who needs to be there, uh, the types of the profile of the type of uh, participants that need to be there. They have to be folks with the capacity to affect real change in a community. It can't just be good-hearted people. Uh, the world's filled with those, but sure. we need change makers. You know? and so we need large employers. We need healthcare to be at the table. We need uh, insurance companies to be at the table. We need United Way to sit there. We need a group of people that can make it happen in a community. So that's kind of, you know, a very early part of the playbook. And then it's it's everything. It's how to how to become a five hundred one c three organization, setting up a governance structure and bylaws and you know, kind of the mundane stuff. But then it's all the tools. It's how do you engage employers? We have an awful lot of experience engaging employers and, and we believe we're the first organization of our kind to do so successfully because we deliver value. The newly created affiliate organization in a community is capable of delivering demonstrable value to employers in a community. In exchange, employers support financially the organization, which make it sustainable. And if the organization is sustainable and not reliant upon public sector funding or charity to keep it going, then it can be strategic and it can, it can continue to ask itself, what is our purpose? Absolutely. Uh, you know, how are we doing? What more do we need to do? What, what's the next sector that we have to bring into a meaningful long-term solution to addiction in this community? And they're not, there's nobody outside of the newly created group in that community telling it what to do. So if I'm hearing you properly, you've created a template, a playbook, almost a how-to manual for a specific community to solve the solvency part of this, the number one public health care issue facing America. Is, is that correct? It's a mouthful, but you know, that's what we set out to do, and, and the template exists today, and it's working. And we're, we're, the word is out about us, and we're actually getting approached by communities all over the country. And so if a listener is listening right now and they're like, hey, I want this in my community, can they reach out to you and, and how do they do that? Go directly to the website. The website is designed specifically for this purpose to, to answer the question you just asked. If, 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 no matter where I live in the United States, if I'm interested in bringing this model to my community, there's a step-by-step -step process that we outline on the website. Wow, that is incredible. And Kevin, let's dive more into the disease. I've been, I sound like a broken record on the podcast saying in 1956, addiction was classified as a disease by the American Medical Association. And it's, to me, it's baffling why we're still talking about this as a disease. But I read something on your website and it says that addiction is biological, it's physiological, and it's environmental, which to me, I've said this before, addiction is the most complicated disease ever to be encountered on the planet Earth. Tell me more about this disease and why it is a disease. Well, that's uh, you know, a good question, a question I struggled with early on because there's so much noise out there on the Internet. You know, There's so much uh, disconnect. One group of treatment providers will talk about alcoholism and another group will talk about substance use disorder. 
Others will talk about dependency. and Others talk about, you know, the terminology was just all over the map. So if we were going to put together an organization that was going to do something meaningful in this area, we had to pick a word. We had to pick a concept. We, uh, we had to define the problem that we were going to solve. So we looked everywhere, looked at all the language, all the definitions, and we came upon one that I realized were all products of our experience, and so I, I brought my own bias into this. What we discovered was a definition that comes to us from the American Society of Addiction Medicine that I think, in my experience, is the most comprehensive and the most accurate because it describes the disease, the chronic disease of addiction as, like you said, the most complex of chronic diseases. It's bio, psycho, social, spiritual in nature. And it takes uh, a group of very smart medical types four pages to define this very complex disease. So that's the, the, the science of the disease is long established. You know, you go way back into the 50s and quote the American Medical Association. But there is no debate. You, you know, you can go on the Internet these days and, and you can find people arguing that the earth is flat. You know, <laughs> but there, there is no debate about whether addiction is a disease. It is every credible medical and scientific source in the United States agrees and has agreed for an awful long time that addiction is, in fact, a disease. But even if, it's, even if you take the bait and, and fall into that discussion, it's a debate we don't have to win. Let, let's call it a hobby. Let's call it a bad habit. But, you know, <laughs> doesn't, matter what we, doesn't matter what we call it. We yeah. know what the solutions are. Yeah. The solutions are to treat it like a chronic disease. Yes, I love uh, it. Provide connectivity to a limitless stream of resources like we treat every other chronic disease in this country. Uh, so call it whatever you want, uh, but that's how it needs to be treated. I love the label that you have behind that what comes behind addiction. And I've never, I've heard it before that addiction is affects the reward center of the brain, but I've, I've never seen it in the same sentence where addiction is a disease directly affecting the reward center of the brain. Tell me more about that. That's not really an area of my expertise. What we have done on our website is look for what we've come to We've concluded after looking at, uh, we think, the universe of stuff out there, the clearest, most accurate way to present the consensus of medicine and science. So really anything we talk about on the web is not really you know, unique to us. It's our best effort to aggregate the collective wisdom that is available to anybody. So you kind of stumped me on that one because I've never, frankly, paid much attention to that. I love just how it's phrased. And I heard this in a podcast called Radio Lab. The episode was called The Fix. And there was a psychologist woman on the podcast. And at the very end, she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, let me throw this in. And it was amazing. It was a value bomb. And it was talking about how addiction affects the reward center of the brain as that addicts almost these days our our biological makeup is backfiring on us because us in we alcoholics we addicts in the past we were the ones that would evolve we were the ones that had enhanced receptors for dopamine that when we hunted when we ate when we procreated when, when we you know walked 20 miles to find water when other people would find 18 we would get more pleasure when we when we you know if we had a campfire and ate ate something we shot so you know in the back you know thousands of years ago it was a reward for us but almost 
in today's modern society, it's backfiring on us. I found that absolutely incredible. And Kevin, let's get back into just some some general questions about you. I'm curious. The best part about this podcast is to hear the recovery remission stories, shall I say. And um, yeah, tell me more about that time in early 90s when you had the world by the tail. You know, what were your drinking habits like? Well, I was medicated. I learned terminology that I didn't know at the time. I just knew at the time my life was falling apart. I was feeling awful, and I felt lonely and hopeless, and, and I thought that that was going to be the, my fate until I died. Mm-hmm. And I, I discovered that uh, I, I had my public consumption, and I had my clandestine, my covert. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. You know, so it was very acceptable for me in my social circles to have two or three glasses of wine, you know, with dinner or, you know, a few beers on a Saturday or whatever. And that was, that served me that, you know, that was pretty normal. I I think, uh, at least it was normal in the circles that I ran with, but over time I I discovered that wasn't enough. So, you know, in order to get to wherever it was, I needed to get to manage or to uh, take away pain or whatever, whatever it was I was after. My consumption had to increase because, I mean, we know this much about the disease. Our tolerance increases over over our life. Yeah, so as my tolerance grew, I had to, uh, it wouldn't be socially acceptable for me to consume as much as I needed to consume to get to where I needed to get. So I began a career of covert uh, drinking that lasted about a decade. Mm -hmm. And that that gradually, you know, started out slow and and grew to some pretty... uh, pretty large amounts, you know, eventually it's like, like 25 ounces of uh, vodka as, as my covert drink. Sure. You know, you know, and you tell those numbers to, to the uninitiated and, you know, I was probably walking around at point two and, you know, a lot of people to the, to the non-professionals among us, you know, if you're point two, you're, you're obviously drunk, you know, and, and incapacitated, but but to, uh, to somebody who's been using a, a alcohol as a medicine and, and building tolerance, point two was my level of function. I mean, that was normal for me for probably you know, an extended period of my life. You know, like a lot of us, uh, eventually that that came tumbling down. I simply couldn't juggle my consumption and my functioning. You know, sometimes I would consume more than I had intended. Yeah. Other times I hadn't consumed enough, so I'd have to be depressed and anxious. And eventually, uh, my medicine just quit working. I, I couldn't consume enough to manage anymore myself. So, you know, I was pretty much a vegetable on the couch, unable to go to work. And I needed help. I knew that line was coming. Eventually, it stopped working. Explain a little bit more about that feeling. You know, I thought that that well, it definitely was the darkest moment of my life. Uh, there were much darker moments ahead, but, but at the time, that was uh, that was about as hopeless as I knew hopeless could be. Uh, here I was, a guy, uh, I had, I, again, I had the world by the tail. I had the wife, the kids, the toys, the reputation, the community stature, uh, and my life was falling apart around me, and I had no idea why, and the, the drinking that I was doing wasn't helping anymore. And I thought I was crazy. I, I knew I was hopeless. I knew that that was the way I was going to die someday. But that was the only reality I knew. I didn't know there was another option. So, yeah, it was a dark and lonely place. So how did you do it? 
how did you get sober? How, okay. All right. I, I like your vernacular. I'm going to start to use this here. How did you begin the process to becoming, well, like getting into uh, remission? My wife took me to my family doctor. That was step number one because uh, I literally was incapable of going to work anymore, uh, incapacitated, uh, and physically shutting and, down. Really. Yeah, I couldn't even speak for myself. I mean, I was crying. You know, so my wife took me to my family doc and did most of the talking. And I described depression and anxiety and you know those things. And, and like all of us, I lied about my alcohol consumption. My wife still <laughs> didn't know about my covert, you know, the covert side of my twenty-four ounces of vodka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, she thought you know something's up, and he's getting weirder all the time. But you know. Never had a clue at that point of the magnitude of my uh, my other life. You know, <laughs> I learned long ago, by the way, that you know, at the time I, I was terminally unique. I was the only person on the planet that had ever had those experiences. And what I learned is, not only wasn't I unique, there wasn't even anything terribly unusual about me. My story has been told millions of times. Seven, so, you know, seven your- yeah, in seventy-one <laughs> times on this podcast, yeah. For your listeners out there, you know. There's nothing unusual and there's nothing shameful about this. This is just what the disease of addiction does to us. You know, and thank thank God if you're listening to this program, you're better armed than I was because you know what the symptoms are. It's not just consuming too much of something. And that's what you know, our field concentrates so much on is, you know, if you drink so many drinks a day and blah 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 then you're then you're you fail the alcoholism test. Well, for me the symptoms were uh, occurred over a number of years, and they went to my very being, how I felt about myself and my identity and my self-esteem and my spiritual health, which was non-existent. Those are symptoms of the disease of addiction, and they're not talked about nearly enough. And Kevin, what have you lost to addiction? Well, that's a very good question, and I have worked with so many people who have lost virtually everything and they're stronger than I am because they've come back from nothing by most of our standards and, and survived and prospered. You know, in retrospect, not only didn't I lose anything, becoming addicted and surviving addiction, going through a, a, a journey of discovery was clearly the best thing that ever happened to me. And, and if any one of my family members was sitting here, they would say, Precisely the same thing, not only with respect to me, but with respect to them. Wow. We all, we all learned an incredible amount. We learned a new perspective. We learned that it's okay to be broken. And it's okay to not to be perfect. Yeah, it's okay to uh, even wear some of these awful labels for a while, you know, until we start getting better, until we enjoy uh, a life of wellness and, and purpose. And Kevin, um, before we reach the rapid fire round, let's talk about just that labels. How, what, how should I talk? What terms should I use? If, if we really want to battle the stigma, I shouldn't say how long have you been sober? Should I say how long have you been in remission? Could you talk to me about some key terms that I should think about using? Well, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't pretend to be uh, your source of authority for, for how the language you should use. But what we concluded is if we're really going to solve addiction, We've got to uh, 
reject the poisoned language of the past. And that's a phrase that I stole from Bill White. He, he wrote a wonderful white paper on this topic years back. And we learned from that. This is going to be a hard enough battle the way it is, solving society's bigger self and, and societal challenge, that we don't need to handicap ourselves by using this poisoned language that we've inherited. Let's ask ourselves, what kind of language w will it take if we're to be successful? Okay, well, what do we know? We know addiction is a chronic disease. Well, there's an entire library of language around chronic disease. If we start using that language, the chances are much better that society will come to accept that addiction is a chronic disease. The people aren't clean, they aren't sober, they aren't dry, they aren't abstinent. They're survivors. Mm. That's the language of chronic disease. It also, it's imperative that we speak about ourselves and those who still suffer in, uh, in a person-centered form of language. So we don't label, uh, you know, breast cancer survivors don't have the awful label of alcoholic to deal with. You know, we... When you think of breast cancer survivors, you think of people. You think of women, largely. You think of families and others gathering, wearing pink ribbons and having races in communities around the country, celebrating life. You don't think about that in the world of addiction. In today's world, you generally think about shoddy service delivery on the other side of the tracks and downtown kind of places uh, serving those people that don't look like me. That's all got to change, and it's got to start with language. So let's use the language of chronic disease and make it person-centered. So when I introduce myself these days, uh, I'm, a, I'm clearly I'm a survivor of addiction. Okay, survivor disease, of addiction. And my disease has been in remission for about, the, well, actually I call myself a 16-year survivor because that was when I was first diagnosed. I think that's the way people with cancer and other chronic disorders refer to themselves. Okay, that was going to be one of my questions. Are you 13 years in remission or 16? Okay, so 16 okay. is when you were diagnosed. I'm a, I'm a 16 year survivor and 13 years in remission. Wow. One of my favorite Destiny's Child song is called Survivor, and so that is what I'm using right now. Um, I am a survivor of addiction. I love it. There you go. Yeah. Then you don't have to explain anything, you know, because everybody understands the language of practice. Yeah, no kidding. Man. Recovery Elevator just got a lot better this morning. I love it. And, and Kevin, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Uh, I'll do it my best. <laughs> Kevin, number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Probably that uh, that first moment that we just talked about, the, the, the day on my couch when life as I knew it was over, uh, that my seeker was out. Uh, my, I was crazy. I was less than other people and hopeless on a couch. And I had to have my wife do my talking for me. Hey, Kevin, next question. We've all heard the aha moment when an inventor comes up with a great idea. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you might not be able to control your drinking? You know, I never really had one of those because I did such a, I was a professional. I really did a great job of controlling my drinking until finally it was just me uh, couch in a fetal position, not being able to function. I, I've never really had one of those uh, lack of control kind of moments. I love it. And next question, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Or what? walk me through a day of your recovery. I have the best job on the planet. I get to go to work 
at an organization called Face It Together, and I'm surrounded by really, really bright people. There's eight of us now in our corporate headquarters. People from all walks of life, capable of independent thought, capable of deduction, looking at a terribly dysfunctional system and a massive problem in this country. And we were we asked really, really tough questions, and none of us pretend to have a monopoly on the answers. So you know, these days, I, I think I'm working my 12 steps to the best of my ability when I carry the message in ways that build community organizations, put the tools in place to offer community organizations around the country the template to, to, to reach uh, large numbers of people uh, because that's my skill set. It's, it's organizing and managing and bringing people together. I love it. And, and Kevin, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Wow. Uh, boy, that's a tough one. Now, let me, uh, I'm going to take more than 30 seconds on this one. Not any problem. Ever okay. So my earliest foray into this field was to open transitional homes in my own community. Now, talk about experiencing stigma firsthand, and I know that's a topic near and dear to you. Try putting a uh, transitional home for people in early recovery in the heart of a community in a very, very nice neighborhood with wonderful access to services, uh, the type of neighborhood that you and I and anybody would love to live in. Try try doing that in the heart of a Midwestern community. It was very, very, very contentious. And I was the face and voice of this movement to put this house so we went in front of planning zoning groups, city council, groups of neighbors, and I looked in the eyes of these mothers who were convinced that their lives you know, would be over, that they'd never walk their kids in their neighborhood, when the, the, it was all over the press. And so anyway, one day, I was prepared to go uh, get yelled at again at one of these public <laughs> windows. And a, a seasoned veteran who was on my board of directors at the time, uh, who was a lifetime political lobbyist in our state, he pulled me aside right before I was to go in front of this group, and he said, look, Kevin, I know you've got all the facts on your side and you've got federal law on your side. And you've got all these wonderful arguments on your side and, and you're going to go get yelled at and call every name of the book tonight. And he said, here's a bit of advice. I want you to go in there and give them all a good listening to. <laughs> that was really, really wonderful advice. And what I did is I went and I listened and I saw in the eyes of, my friends, my neighbors, people I've grown up with in this community, real people with solid values, scared to death that a transitional home for people suffering from the disease of addiction was about to come into their neighborhood. That was what I needed to experience, to understand that the battle that must be overcome isn't with that group of neighbors. These are good, solid people. Sure. It, it's much, much bigger than that. This is a battle that must be fought across every segment of society if we're ever going to be successful at eliminating stigma. So did the house come there? The recovery, the, the, the transitional house come? Yeah, now we've got, uh, there's three of them. Uh, that organization is prosperous. They're always full. And there's never been an incident in the neighborhood. And to the contrary, these, uh, the occupants of our homes have become wonderful friends uh, to the neighbors and they, you know, Trade cookies, and you know, it's just been a wonderful experience for everybody. 
Best advice I've ever received. Give them a listen. I love it. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in recovery? Okay. Who are in remission or are thinking about, ah, how would I phrase that one? Ooh, who are thinking about getting or entering remission? Yeah. You want help with that one? Yeah. Actually, how would I phrase that? Just help me out with that. Yeah. So the original question is, well, okay. yeah. What parting well, piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or are thinking about getting sober? How would you phrase that, Kevin? About- well, it's, it's no different than having uh, uh, asthma or uh, check. I got asthma, or hypertension, or diabetes, or anything. You know, what do you do? You go, you see a professional, and and you get a, a plan to to achieve wellness. You know, and so what does what does uh, survival of addiction look like? Well, it looks like wellness. You know, it looks like leading a life of physical, you know, biopsychosocial, spiritual wellness. That's what is available to us, uh, the same way it's available with, with any other health issue. Kevin, I love it. Thank you so much for joining us. Once again, before we depart, how can we find more information about We Face It Together? What's the website again? www.wefaceittogether.org. And uh, the site should have all the information. I can guarantee your listeners that they've never seen a site like it. I can uh, so, second that. Yeah. I- Yeah, go kick the tires on it, and we'd love to hear from you. Love it. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Paul, thank you very much. Now, I have been diagnosed no shortage of time professionally with ADHD, and I was just about to wrap up the podcast episode, and I was like, wait a second. Earlier I said, there are two reasons why this debate is still happening. Well, number two, there's a lot of money behind drugs and alcohol. Let's talk about the legal drug, alcohol. There's a ton of money money that I probably will never, ever know. Actually, I will never know that type of money. Let's just get real here. Again, the purpose of this podcast is not to defame, deride any alcohol company, but it's in their best interest to make sure this debate, this conversation, that addiction is not a disease. It's in their best interest to keep that debate and discussion live and going. Think about that one for a second. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We... 